You know, as we get started, um, uh, Sunday is Easter, so there are three services. Hey, uh, Bruce, can you help me? Uh, tell me the service times again Sunday. 7, 9, and 11. So uh, come at 7. Help everybody out. And Mike had an announcement because we need some help. Mike, go ahead. <coughs> hey, guys, go ahead. Listen up here. But it is a very important time. It is, it's a sacred moment. We try to fulfill that by being organized and being ready to serve the people that actually show up and want to be served. And that's difficult to do when we don't have enough people. So if there's anybody here that can, that can help us serve, it doesn't matter if you've never served before. We'll go over it with you and show you what to do and where to be. Um, please see me afterwards over here. And I need probably about 10 to 15 guys still. And we're going to meet about 6 o'clock, an hour before, to run through everything, and 7 o'clock on Friday night. Good deal. Thanks. Good Friday. You bet. Let's pray, guys. Let's go before the Lord. Father, we thank you so much that we can call you Father. We thank you that that is a term that carries with it uh, all of the care and concern and, um, and love and attention that, um, that so many of us uh, wish we had and didn't. Others of us uh, come from situations where our fathers showed those things to us. But none of us, none of us had perfect fathers, not earthly fathers. But you are that perfect father for us. And we are grateful. We are in process, we are learning, we are uh, beset with weaknesses, we, we have strengths, but we're also acutely aware of what's missing, and we thank you for your patience, and we thank you for the endurance that you provide, and we thank you for the encouragement. Thanks for these guys that in the middle of a busy week uh, are here to uh, look into the pages of your book. Uh, Lord, you are our teacher. Uh, we thank you that these words in your word are alive and they're sharp and our, our lives hinge on these words. So tonight, give us teachable hearts and teachable spirits for those of us who are fatigued just from the uh, activities of the day and the interaction and the stresses. Uh, energize us. Give us a surge of energy and attention. Uh, don't let our hearts become dull just because it's the end of the day. But give us what we need to hear from you and give us hearts to apply it and take it and use it because we'll need it tomorrow, first thing when we get up. We're counting on your word, we're counting on your promises, and we thank you that they have never failed. Encourage us all. Give us what we need tonight, we pray, Lord Jesus. In your name, we pray. Amen. I picked up a book a while back, and uh, it's one of those books that 
wasn't quite sure I got it, but it was called Against the Gods, The Remarkable Story of Risk. And uh, I read about half of it. it. It was fair. It was fair. One of those books you go, it's, it's all right. Nothing to write home about. There was a story in here about a family, uh, the Bernoulli family. And he talks about this one guy, Daniel Bernoulli, who was a world, world-class mathematician. I'll just read you a, uh, a paragraph. Daniel Bernoulli was a member of a remarkable family. From the late 1600s to the late 1700s, eight Bernoullis had been recognized as celebrated mathematicians. Those men produced what the historian Eric Bell described as a swarm of descendants. And of this posterity, the majority of them achieved distinction, sometimes amounting to eminence in the law, scholarship, literature, the learned professions, administration, and the arts. None were failures. End of paragraph. Now, that's wrong. When he says, none were failures. I would submit to you that as gifted in scholarship and academics as these men were, as many honors, uh, awards, they might have received. When he says none of them were failures, I would submit to you that all of them were failures. Just as all of us in this room are failures. We're just failures in different ways. Everyone deals with failure. Every man experiences failure. Uh, the, Bible, the Bible addresses uh, failure in our lives and gives us solutions to failure and gives us, I think most importantly, hope for when we fail. John Flavel once wrote this. He said, as God did not at first choose you because you were so high, so he will not forsake you because you are so low. And see, when we fail, that's exactly what crosses our mind uh, especially if it's failure that is the result of a bad choice or a bad decision that we have made. There are different kinds of failure in the world. There's a career failure. Uh, some guys get laid off and they take that personally that somehow they failed. But in actuality, it was just a circumstantial failure. Uh, now, you can start a business and make real, real bad decisions, make a whole series of decisions and experience some failure. Well. That's a result of bad decision-making. It's a bad result of not using wisdom, you see? Uh, so there's career failure. Uh, there is, uh, uh, there's relationship failure, um, where uh, your relationship with your wife, where a wife becomes emotionally dead. Uh, how can that happen? A woman who is a living, physical, animated being can become emotionally dead to her husband. Um, that's a failure. In some way, shape, or form, it, it's, it's, it's not getting in to the need of that particular woman and meeting that need. Um, there's all kinds of failure. It can be failure as a parent. 
I was looking in my library today. I was looking for a couple books. And um, I, I started noting how many books that I had that had the word success in the title. I had a whole bunch of them. In fact, I could kind of recategorize my library, and I could have a success section. And I could just start pulling books that have the word success in the title. Um, I only have one book that comes to my mind that has the word failure in the title uh, by uh, Erwin Lutzer. It's called Failure, the Back Door to Success. <laughs> and it's the best of any of the books, you see? Because what is true success? You talk to anyone that's really experienced true biblical success, and you know how they got there? They went through the back door of failure. You see, uh, uh, failure is common to all of us. Common, uh, it's, it's, it's something that we experience. Most of us experience it um, early. And quite frankly, the earlier you experience it, the better off you are. Because if failure doesn't come to you until later, you get this uh, really skewered view of yourself of how competent and how capable and uh, how exceptional that you really are. And you see, that just takes you away from the kind of success that you really need to have in life. Uh, it's, it's a synthetic success. Um, failure is a tough thing. But uh, it has been said, and I believe that it was uh, Henry Ford, of all people, who said this. Ford said, um, failure is the opportunity to begin again more intelligently. And in Joshua chapter 8, that is precisely what is taking place. Um, there was a spiritual failure that happened in Joshua. You know, uh, it's possible. We talked for a minute about career failure and relational failure. Uh, it, there is spiritual failure. Um, Judas was a spiritual failure. It was John uh, Flavel who said, Judas heard every sermon Christ preached. That's a mouthful. And that is a mindful. You see, get that again. Judas heard every sermon Christ preached. But Judas was a failure. Why? Because the word of God did not take root in his heart, and he didn't obey it. He just heard it. We're told in James, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers. Yeah. Um, I'm reading a biography right now on Benjamin Franklin. Now, he was quite a guy. I, uh, he was an amazing man, very, very gifted. Um, he, he did more, let me put it this way. Most guys, if, they had, if most men had one of his accomplishments, they would die feeling that their life had not been in vain. But he had a multitude of them. Uh, he invented something called the Franklin stove. And, and he tweaked this fireplace insert uh, because what was happening in Philadelphia, 
they were burning so much wood, and they basically had their fireplaces going seven months out of the year in Philadelphia, and even more uh, <clears throat> up north in, Bo <clears throat> in Boston. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, uh, he came up with this insert and tweaked it. And uh, what was happening in Philadelphia is that they were having to go further and further. <clears throat> I'm going to ask somebody, then get me a shot of water. As I can tell right now, I'm going to have trouble. Thanks, Les. They had to go further and further out to get firewood. And he just projected that if they kept going at the rate they were going, it was going to, you know, they'd be going 10, 15, 20 miles out. So he came up with this Franklin Snow. And what was interesting about Franklin, he refused to patent it. If, if he had have patent, patented it, it, you know what I'm trying to say there. If he had have done that, if he had have secured the patent, uh, he would have made uh, millions of dollars in royalties. But he didn't do that. He wanted that to be used, thanks Les, and uh, distributed as widely as possible. Just that in itself was an accomplishment. But you know the story. He's out there tweaking the kite and playing with the kit and all that, you see. But the real story on that was that he began to make observations when he was in England um, and that's when he figured out about lightning rods. And he came up with that whole thing. Um, uh, the concept of matching grants. Some of you guys work for corporations, and you can give money uh, to, a, to a charity, and they will match the grant. Benjamin Franklin came up with that idea. There must be, uh, there must be 10 or 12 unique ideas that Franklin came up with. With. He was the one that got the, uh, that established fire departments in the United States of America. He was the guy that came up with the concept. Because uh, he had visited England and uh, uh, realized about the great fire that hit England in the 1660s and saw the devastation that was still there years and years later. And he started thinking about that when he was crossing the Atlantic to come back. And he came up with a whole system. Amazing guy. But you see, this book I'm reading has all these successes about Franklin, but in the middle of it, I, uh, I, I read a long letter that's included in his biography that he wrote to a young man that he was mentoring, and the essence of the letter was he was coaching the young man on how to find a, mint, a mistress and the qualities that he should be looking for in a mistress, which are different qualities than you want in a wife. So here is this gifted man who, quite frankly, was a moral failure. How did his wife feel about that letter? See, everybody is familiar with failure, and everybody experiences failure. The question is, when failure occurs, uh, what do you do with it? So let's go to Joshua 8. Because the context of Joshua 8, if you were with us last week, we found out about the defeat at Ai. Uh, they had defeated Jericho. They then go up to take a city called Ai. And they only took uh, two or 3,000 men because uh, that's all they needed. Ai was, was, quite frankly, a much smaller city. And what happened was when they went up there to take this city, uh, they were soundly defeated. They had 36 men killed. And when Joshua tore his clothes and went before God and didn't understand what had happened, God made it very clear to him that there was sin in the camp when they took Jericho, God made it very clear that no one was to take any spoil. All of the goods, all the silver, all of the gold was to go into the treasury of the Lord. But there was a guy by the name of Achan. And what Achan did was that Achan saw a mantle or a robe, um, a beautiful robe, 
and he saw some silver, and he saw some gold, and he took it, um, and he hid it. And they went through a system where God said, get all of Israel together tomorrow. We're going to consecrate everybody. And they went through all the tribes. They come down to the tribe of Judah. So 11 of the tribes are off the hook, but they got the tribe of Judah, and they know the problems in Judah. And then they started going household by household, and they get down to Achan, and they found the sin. And we realized last week that we never sin alone and that uh, there is no such thing as uh, what our culture says, well, it's all right as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else because our sin always affects someone else. Because we live in community, because we live in a, a, a church, because we live in a family. So individual sin always has corporate consequences, and that's what happened because of the sin of Achan. Um, the whole nation was disciplined by God. Now, in Joshua 8, here's what we read. Now, the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear or be dismayed. By the way, what they did was they took Achan and they took his entire family and they stoned them. And now we know from, the, from Deuteronomy that Deuteronomy says that children are not to be... Um, children are not to be killed for the sins of their father. So the children in this situation were not three and four and five-year-old little kids running around who were innocent. He had an older family who were, uh, quite frankly, accomplices in what he did, or they never would have been punished along with their father, because the scripture doesn't violate scripture. Then they stack up memorial stones so that they won't forget what had happened. In verse 8, and again, this is a place where there's a chapter break, but it really flows right out of the last verse of chapter 7. Now the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. And you shall go and you shall do to Ai and its king just as you did to Jericho and its king, you shall take only its spoil and its cattle as plunder for yourselves. Set an ambush for the city behind it. So here's what's happened. They went up to Ai. They had a defeat at Ai. They'd never been defeated before because the Spirit of God was going ahead of them, uh, was fighting for them. The commander-in-chief was fighting for them. But you see, they're taking the land. They're taking each city was dependent on their obedience to the word of God and to the covenant. When they disobeyed, God withdrew his hand and they experienced defeat. So now, don't be dismayed, Joshua. We're going to go back up to Ai and we're going to take it. In other words, it's just exactly what Henry Ford said. Failure is the opportunity to begin again more intelligently. Note in verse 1, if you would, note the phrase, I have given. I have given. I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his hand. See, here is a promise that comes on the heel of a major failure. They failed, but now God says, I'm going to give him to you. I, I, I have given him to you. It, it's as good as done. Uh, what, what precipitated God's response to that? What, what they did was, when, when they realized the sin, they dealt with the sin, they acknowledged the sin, and they followed to the T 
God's remedy for taking care of the sin. Um, we, we live in an age where uh, church discipline is not real popular. I don't think church discipline has ever been popular. But it's amazing how much the scripture has to say to the church when there's sin in the camp. Why is it that so many churches are weak and sick and ineffective? I think it's because we don't take the scripture seriously. Uh, how many times have we seen uh, a situation where a, a pastor or a significant leader in a church has gotten into immorality or some such thing, and instead of it being dealt with in an upfront biblical way, it's sort of covered over. Uh, it's, um, well, you've seen it, and I've seen it. Um, sometimes when it's blatant, it's almost easier than when it takes place behind the scenes and it's subtle. Uh, Matthew 18 says, if a brother is in sin, go to your brother and reprove him, and if, you, and if your brother listens to you, you've won your brother. But if your brother doesn't listen to you, what should you do? According to Matthew 18. Take another brother. Go take two or three with you. And that's something that is, uh, is not real palatable to us. But if you really love your brother and you have a relationship and you see that a guy's on a track of, of ruining his life and you see that he's in a situation where he's compromising the truth in his own life, you go to him, if he listens to you, great. But if he doesn't, you can't stop there. you got to go get two or three. Have you ever had to do this? It's a hard thing. But you see, it's the right thing. Because in essence, what you're doing, James says, if you turn someone back, uh, you're, you're, you're keeping them from death, is what you're doing. Uh, it, it's the same principle as if you had a friend that was drowning in a flash flood. Would you go in after the guy? Yeah, you probably would. But if you got stuck, there might be two or three other guys that would go in after. You see, it's a team effort because you're trying to save somebody. Uh, the purpose of all this is not condemnation. The purpose of this is to retrieve somebody and to restore somebody and to get them back on track. If they listen to the two or three, then you've won your brother. But if they don't listen, what do you do? You take them before the church. I remember years ago, I mean, gosh, I was just barely out of college, and a guy that I knew um, at, a, at a church in California, uh, it was a Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto where Ray Stebman was pastor. And there was a guy that uh, had a ministry and was a business guy and, uh, you know, had been married a few years. And, I mean, he'd be at a study like this and be real involved and, you know, he'd be serving communion and all that type of thing. Um, well, he, he got enamored with some gal at his office. And uh, one of his buddies realized it. And, of course, nothing had taken place, nothing had happened. They were just talking and, you know, and his buddy went to him and, and said, man, you know, that's not a good idea. You can't be meeting with this gal. Well, he, he said, no, it's all right. It's okay. Nothing's wrong. We're just friends. So he went and got a couple other guys, and they went to this guy. And once again, he wouldn't listen to him. 
And uh, this was over a course of weeks, and it was over a course of months. And, and then it turned out that it was, it was getting a little further down the road because you don't continue to see somebody like that without things progressing. And it got to a point where it had been going on for close to a year, year and a half. Some of the elders had gotten involved. Some of the pastors had gotten involved. And, uh, I mean, this isn't something you do overnight. This isn't something you Federal Express. This is something where you're trying to win somebody, and you're talking, and you're dialoguing. And, but finally, it got to a point where it became very, very clear that he had just dug in his heels, and he wasn't going to change. And because they loved this guy, they said to him, this uh, Sunday morning, we're going to follow Matthew 18. And we're going to tell the church what's going on. And you know what was interesting? Saturday night he broke. And he made a call. And he met with the pastors and the elders. And uh, he cut off that relationship. And he got back on track. And he's on track to this day. You see? Now that was tough. And they would have gone through with it on Sunday morning. That same church there's a guy named Lambert Dolphin, a research scientist at Stanford, uh, has one of the best websites you can ever go to uh, in terms of biblical material and links. It's uh, one of mine. Roger, you go to it all the time. It's a gold mine. Uh, Lambert Dolphin was a guy that was uh, a brilliant scientist at Stanford, Stanford Research Institute, uh, lived that life in, in uh, the Bay Area, was a brilliant guy, had all kinds of money and uh, was doing very, very well, uh, came to know the Lord through Ray Stedman, had his life remarkably changed. And uh, uh, Lambert was a guy who, uh, he was a guy that had a remarkable testimony and picked things up just like that, had a steel trap mind, started speaking on university campuses, and he was having an impact. And what became clear a number of years down the road is that there was still an issue in Lambert's life that he was not dealing with. And they went through that process with Lambert. And interestingly enough, uh, and it was a sexual issue. I mean, Lambert tells this story. He's, he's told it many times. And they went through this process with Lambert. And uh, he dug in his heels. And they finally had to get up on a Sunday morning, and they had to talk about Lambert and what he had done. And I want to tell you something. That was not an easy thing to do because this guy had notoriety, and this guy had a following, and this guy was loved. And a lot of people didn't respond to that real well. But they weren't there to please people. They were there to please the Lord, and they were there to rescue Lambert. Uh, Lambert continued down that course for a couple of years and uh, pursued this area of sin. And it got so bad that finally he tried to uh, take his life, and being a research scientist and a chemist, he knew how to do that, so he took a concoction took enough to kill him, and, uh, and he woke up. And it really hacked him off because they, they were able to rush him to Stanford Medical Center and they saved his life. And uh, he continued down that path. He continued down that road of sin for another couple of years, and he decided one night his life was so miserable, well, he's going to do it again. This time he's really going to come up with a concoction. So he kind of doubled everything, took it, and when he woke up again, he realized 
that God wasn't going to let him go. It had been now four or five years since the public proclamation. And he called up Ray and went over and met with Ray and some of the elders. And in genuine brokenness and repentance, he confessed his sin. And then the next Sunday, they had Lambert up front. And Lambert basically said, some of you were here a number of years ago when these men loved me enough to follow the scriptures. What they did was right. What they said was true. I'm here to say that uh, I'm repenting and asking Christ to forgive me. And then that night, they announced they were throwing a party. They were having a prodigal son party, and they had a barbecue. Isn't that great? But you see, now, now let's think about this. They had a prodigal son party. They really did. And it was a time of tremendous rejoicing. And uh, that's a rare thing because, see, the easy thing is not to follow the scriptures. The, the easy thing is to ignore what the scriptures have to say about sin. And, and listen, when sin gets in the camp, it's just like when cancer gets in your body and it's not dealt with. Uh, if, if you get a surgeon who says, yes, you've got this, this tumor, and I really ought to go in and take it out, but you know what? Gosh, it's going to hurt you. And I, you know, I, I just don't want to do that to you. Man, you'd go find another doctor. You need, someone, you need someone who loves you enough to do what's difficult. That's what they did here. And you see, God always honors his word. In none of those instances were they trying to condemn or go after the individual or mar them publicly. They were trying to save them and rescue them. God says, because of their obedience, because of their obedience, uh, they're going to go back to AI, and they're going to have a great victory. Now, there, there's a couple things we ought to notice here. Uh, if you would, notice verse 2, because there's something said in verse 2 that um, I think is fairly significant. And you shall do to AI and its king just as you did to Jericho and its king, you shall take only its spoil and its cattle as plunder for yourselves. Set an ambush for the city behind it. Um, my point is this. If Achan had have obeyed the word of God in regards to Jericho, Achan would have been around to take the gold and silver when they went to Ai. That's the point. In Jericho, God said, you can't take any of it. In Ai, he said, you can have the spoil. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. But he couldn't wait, and greed got a hold of his heart. Um, something that's interesting to me about the book of Joshua is that every time they fought a battle, under the direction of the Lord, they, they fought it differently. In, in other words, in each situation, new orders were given that were be, to be obeyed to the T. What that tells me is that the Holy Spirit uh, is, is not into cookie-cutter uh, theology or cookie-cutter application. Um, 
in, in each situation that they were facing, they didn't do it the way that they did it before. They had a new plan that they were to obey. And, I, and you see, it's a walk of faith. I think that's how it is in our lives, is that God brings up these situations in our lives, and because He wants us dependent on Him, if the plan is always the same that it's been for five years or 10 years or 15 years, I don't need the Lord. I don't need dependence on Him. I don't need to be on my knees asking for His wisdom. I don't need to be in the book uh, trying to discern the will of God, you see, because I already know how it's going to be. He wants us to be dependent on Him. That's why these dish, different issues come into our lives, and what we need is wisdom, and what we need is uh, understanding of the principles that God has given us in His Word, and then we obey Him. So, so every battle was involving a different strategy. Note the strategy here for this uh, battle at Ai. It's totally different than what happened at, uh, at Jericho. In verses 3 through 9, you've got a plan of attack. Um, and basically, I'm just going to summarize this for you, because this is a long chapter. In verses 3 and 4, 30,000 warriors are to go up and ambush Ai from behind. In verses 5 and 6, a decoy group is to draw the men out of Ai. In verses 9 and 12, 5,000 men between Bethel and Ai uh, are going to be there to prevent Bethel from helping Ai. So see, it's a totally different plan than what they did in, uh, in Jericho. In Jericho, they marched around the city one time each day for six days, and on the seventh day, they marched around how many times? Seven days, they blew the ram's horn, and boom, the walls came down. Um, I, I got this book from these great quotes from these old Puritans. I just love reading this book. I, at night, I just read through and I, I found this one the other, the other day. Listen to this. God, it, it's about the patience of God. God was but six days in making the whole world, yet seven days in destroying one city. Why? Because God's patient. Because God's good. Different strategy here when it comes to AI. Then in verses 10 through 17, you've got the procedure for the ambush because that's what they're going to do. They're going to ambush these guys. Look at verse 10. Now Joshua rose early in the morning, mustered the people, and he went up with the elders of Israel before the people to AI. Then all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near and arrived in front of the city and camped on the north side of AI. Now there was a valley between him and AI. And he took 5,000 men, set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. See, there's a strategy here that is being implemented. Look at verse 14. And it came about when the king of Ai saw it, that the men of the city hurriedly rose up early and went out to meet Israel in battle. This king sees these guys. All right, let's go take them. And so he leads all his people out. But look at the end of 14. But he did not know that there was an ambush behind him against the city, behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. And all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. So not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who had not gone out after Israel. They left the city unguarded and pursued Israel. And then the other guys come in and boom, you got them sandwiched. Um, See, I think the issue here in the Christian life is, is dependence on 
the Lord. Are, are any of you guys facing an issue right now and it's and you're trying to sort it out and you're trying to get wisdom uh, to navigate your way through this set of circumstances that you've never been in before? I imagine there's some of you here. I know, I know I'm there. I think we're always there. We're always facing circumstances we've never faced before. Now, are there general principles in the Word of God? And are there specific principles in the Word of God? Yeah. Yeah, there are. And see, I'm to implement those principles. As I'm facing what I'm facing, as you're facing what you're facing, how in the world do you discern what God wants you to do? Well, you discern it from the book. I'll tell you something else you do. Uh, Proverbs says that in, a, in an abundance of counselors, there's wisdom, there's victory. So if you're not real clear, even if you think you're clear, you know what a good thing to do is? It just talks to some other guys. But you respect their walk, you appreciate their maturity in Christ, sit down with them. Say, hey, let me run something by you. How does that sound? You see any red flags here? Get some wisdom. That's a biblical principle. I remember when I was a young rookie pastor, I faced an issue I had never faced before in my life. And uh, I was pastoring a church about 15 miles from Peninsula Bible Church. And I was very fortunate to have Ray Stedman nearby. And I'd have lunch with Ray and spend time with Ray and here and there. And gosh, what a great mentor. But all of a sudden, this thing blew up one day. And they'd never covered it in seminary. So I call up Ray. Well, raised down in Argentina on some kind of missions trip, and they didn't have cell phones back then. And I mean, he was somewhere on the Pampas or something. I don't know what he was doing, but Ray was not available. I thought, oh my gosh. And uh, this thing went on, and we had a couple days, a very intense. And I remember thinking towards the end of that week, you know, I'll tell you what, I am in over my head. What am I going to do? And I remember sitting there. I can still remember that chair and that desk. I remember sitting there. I remember thinking, you know what? I got to call Swindoll. But how would I ever get through to him? <laughs> Some big shot on the radio. How am I going to, how am I going to, he didn't know me from Adam. How am I going to get through? And, and I, I, I mean, I was desperate. I was absolutely desperate. And I called information and got the phone number. And I, got, and I knew his secretary's name because he always thanked you every time he wrote a book. Helen Peters. I knew all about Helen. It seemed to me she was pretty smart. You know, she might have written the books for all I knew. I mean, I didn't know. I thought, I'm gonna and I got Helen on the phone and I, and I explained to her real quick, I'm a pastor, bup, bup, and she said, just a minute. And in, in 30 seconds, Chuck was on the phone. I couldn't believe it. And, and I said, here's what I've got. Here's the situation. What should I do? He said, I'd call Ray. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. You know what? I was a rookie. I was brand new. And he said, here's what, I'll never forget. He said, you do this, you do this, you do this, and you do that. I said, okay. And he said, as soon as Ray comes back, you get with him. I said, yes, sir. And I did exactly what he told me to do, and it worked. You see? And I kind of knew I mean, I had been thinking along those lines. I just needed, I just needed, I needed someone to help me. I'd never been there before. 
I was scared to death. But then, now see, here's the deal. A couple things that he told me to do, I want to tell you something, were tough. And I knew I was going to get some opposition. I knew I was going to probably get some opposition from guys off my own board. But I knew it was biblical, and I knew it was right. So then what was my job? My job was to, it starts with the letter O. What? Obey. And God sorted it out, you see. I still get into situations they didn't cover in seminary. Don't you? Don't you get into situations? You know what cracks me up? You can go to certain seminars, and, and some of these guys have got the 18 steps to this. And then the 16 steps to this. And then here are the 28 steps to this. I mean, those are wonderful. That's great. But you know what? How come those aren't in the Bible? Just, you see? That's why when you hear stuff like that, just don't take those steps at face value. Match them to the Word of God and see if they add up to the Word of God because the authority are not the steps. The authority is the Scripture. You see what I'm saying? Don't take the guy's word because he runs some seminar. You match it up to the Word of God. If it fits, then you take the counsel. Then you take the advice. So if, if, if Chuck gives you some advice, do you just take it? No. You match it to the Word of God. He'd be the first one to tell you that. That's the, the Scriptures are the authority. But God honors it. God honors obedience to His Word. That's why where there was failure, they're now going to go up and take Ai, and they're going to plunder these guys, and they're going to take care of them. You see? We've all experienced failure in some way, shape, or form. The question is, how do you come out of failure? Because we can get so hung up, guys, on our failure. You know who could have got hung up and absolutely paralyzed because of the failure in his life? was the Apostle Paul. Paul held the coats of the men who stoned Stephen. This guy was so motivated. This guy was so intense. He made it his business to persecute Christians. That was his life's work. It was his ambition. And after he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and his whole life has changed, do you think that he was vulnerable in his weak moments to the whispers of the enemy that would come to him as they had to do and say, who are you? Look at what you've done. Look at your failure. Look at the people you imprisoned. Look at the people that were beaten and tortured and even lost their lives because of you. See, he could have focused on his failure in his past. That's what the enemy loves for us to do. When you see that failure, you're reminded of it. What that failure does is, that past failure, it paralyzes you in the present. And it freezes you. And you can't move on. And you're ineffective in the present because you're accused by the accuser of the brethren about what's happened in your past. And we've all got that. We've all screwed up. We've all messed up. But God wants us to move on. And he's made a way uh, of, of providing us justification and forgiveness so that no matter what the failure is, when we, when we respond to him and when we respond to the failure, he moves on. So, so see, this failure thing, when it happens, what do you do when failure happens? 
I, here's what I think you do. I think you fess up. Uh, the first failure, Eve was tempted. She eats the fruit. Then she goes and gets Adam. He eats the fruit. God comes looking for him in the garden. And that dialogue that takes place, how'd this happen? The woman whom you gave to me. Was that not his response? What do you call that? You call that an excuse. You call that a rationalization. Was there failure? Yeah, and there was blame, and there was rational, and basically he was blaming God for what he had done. That was God's problem, you see. Uh, Moses is up there getting the, uh, the commandments from God. He's up on the mountain. He comes back down. God tells him, you better get back down. Aaron's in charge. Those people are down there partying. They're worshiping an idol. He, he, he gets in Aaron's face, and Aaron says, we had this gold, and, and, and we melted it down, and this, this, this cow came out. <laughs> that was a failure. But you see, there are two examples of how you do not respond to failure. When you fail, what do you do? What's the best thing? You come clean. And, say, and you just say, I screwed up. Admit it. Everybody knows it. Don't blame. Don't hurl. Don't point your finger. Don't rationalize. Don't justify. Uh, true repentance never claims rights. True repentance never seeks to justify. True repentance uh, admits if we confess our sin. Uh, the idea there is agreeing. If we agree, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Everybody has failed. But you're going to prolong the process if you don't admit it and if you don't deal with it. You see, they had an issue. They had failure. They dealt with it. They were obedient. We had a principle last week. And if you remember the principle is sin slows. Sin in a believer's life slows or stops the blessing of God in your life. So when a believer is in sin and dealing with sin, in a pastoral staff or in an elder situation, do you think God's going to bless this church? What do you think? I'm telling you, it's going to come to a screeching halt. What, and what if the other elders, what if the other leadership find out about it and don't do anything about it? My gosh. I mean, what is it? What are you doing? Where did, how does that glorify God? How does that honor God? It doesn't. But see, when we respond to failure, and we deal with it, and we're obedient, and we confess it, the blessing of God continues. That's what happened with these guys. Now, as a result, and you can read through here how they ambushed these guys, they followed the plan to a T, um, they had a tremendous victory. Um, look at verse 27. It says, Israel took only the cattle and the spoil of that city as plunder. Um, for themselves according to the word of the Lord which he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation until this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua gave command and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the city gate and raised it over a great heap of stones uh, that stands to this day. See, they had a great success in the exact same place where they had had great failure. 
Sometimes it's as though in our lives is that it's as though God says to us, now you know what? We're going to do this again until we get it right. Let's get this squared away. You see? Sometimes in our relationship with our wives, there's an issue in my heart or an issue in your heart. And why is it that that issue keeps coming up? Because I've got a hard heart. Because, because I'm, not, I'm not growing up. I'm not responding to the Spirit of God. And that lesson, listen, you're going to go back to summer school. You're not going to move on. God does not work like the public schools. <laughs> you may not read. You may not write. God will not promote you. Because, you see, there's a body of information and there's a body of truth that he wants you to master and comprehend and understand and apply to your life. So you can stay in third grade until you're 68 years old. But that issue will continue to be dealt with until we respond and we have uh, soft hearts and we have open hearts and we have repentant hearts. See, the relationship, that issue between you and your wife, if, if, if it's you, if there's an issue with you, you that, it's not going to move to the next level until there's obedience, until there's a responsiveness, you see. This, this is the process that we're in. Uh, but where, where there has been failure, there can be tremendous blessing and there can be victory like they experienced at AI. It all has to do with attitude. It all has to do with heart. It all has to do with obedience. Um, let's, let's nail... I want to I nail a few things about failure and then... I want to talk about success, because interestingly enough, they just had a great success. There are two things in life that are extremely dangerous. One is failure. What's the other? Success. success. <laughs> Tough world we're in, isn't it? You see? You just get out of failure, you get a little success, well, you better be real careful. Because, see, success can trip you up just as much as failure can. Uh, let me give you three things about failure. Number one, and we've already, I've already nailed this. Number one, he dealt, he dealt with failure. Joshua, as leader of Israel, dealt with failure as God commanded him and instructed him. Um, they admitted it. They took the appropriate action to straighten it out. Number two, they didn't dwell on it. Uh, dwelling on past failure is a waste of time. Paul, Paul, who we've already referred to in Philippians 2.13, said, forgetting what lies behind. Now, the one who wants to continually bring it up is the enemy. But that's where you have to discipline your thoughts, because as he brings it up, once again, if you allow him to bring it up and dredge it up, he'll paralyze you. Your focus can't be on the accuser. The focus has to be on the Savior who has justified you and forgiven you and giving you a task to do. Um, here's number three. Uh, he learned from it. Um, that was only true of Joshua, it, 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 as we'll see later in the book. Uh, but but it's, I, I think it's true of anybody in Scripture. Um, that's where Lutzer's book comes in. Failure can be the back door to success if you learn from it. That's why when we go through these kind of things, I think we ought to be saying, Lord, what are you trying to say to me here? When you experience a failure, 
When I was that rookie pastor and uh, was gosh, um, those first three years, I, I was so far in over my head. And you know what was amazing? I really thought I knew what the heck I was doing. I, I, quite frankly, I was fairly impressed with myself. And I expected some really good things to happen. And, um, and you know, some things, God was good and some good things happened. But, 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 you know, I was violating so many principles because I was so driven for success that I failed. I was so fixated on growing a church, I forgot to grow my marriage. See, there's a, there's a ministry ladder just as there's a corporate ladder. If, if you're in the corporate world, you know about that ladder. But I'm telling you, it's as real in the ministry world. You got guys in churches, pastoring churches that are 250 and 350. And you know what they're thinking? A lot of those guys, they want their church at 600 and 700. And the guys at the 6, 700, no, not all of them, but some of them. And, and, and I'll tell you what, you got you to gotta work this through. Because, see, we always think the grass is greener on the other side. See, we always feel better about ourselves if we can, if we can pastor a church that's 50% bigger than the one we're pastoring now. That's just the world. That's just wrong thinking. But, you see, I, in, my, in my youthfulness, I was so fixated on growing that church, I forgot about growing my marriage. I, I, I can really remember Mary one night saying to me, she said, Steve, can we just go see a movie? Can we just go out together? And it really kind of bothered me because I really didn't have time to do that. I mean, I was totally out of control. I never took a day off. I never took a Sabbath, ever. I didn't do it. Because you see, I was trying to build this thing. And uh, So, um, anyway, after about three years, it just, I, I just absolutely wore myself out, lost all motivation for a year, and decided I was going to resign and go somewhere else, although the church had grown, but uh, hadn't grown to my satisfaction. So in my immaturity, I went ahead and I resigned knowing I'd go somewhere else. And uh, uh, I interviewed with seven different churches and none of them, none of them uh, wanted to go beyond that first interview. And I went back and got my job driving a truck that I had in college. And uh, it was a tough time. Uh, it was a real tough time. And I remember, um, out of that failure, I remember um, sitting in a traffic light, and I remember just starting, I just started crying because I was driving this truck. And uh, I had, that, was a, that was a hard time. But I, I, I also remember, um, and things got worse before they got better because God was putting me in the vice. And you know what he was teaching me? He was teaching me, I'll tell you something, it was during that period of my life where I started studying Joshua for the first time. And what I realized is that the whole book of Joshua is you let the Lord go ahead of you. When he says move, you move. And, and you do it the way he says do it. And you don't go to some church growth seminar and start incorporating the principles. You do what he says. It's his deal. It's his church. It's his ministry. So, quite frankly, I mean, quite frankly, I, I, um, I wasn't pastoring a church. Nobody was real interested in me. I'm driving a truck, and I'd really kind of screwed everything up. 
and uh, uh, just out of immaturity and foolishness and stupidity. Uh, I had a degree in all, in all those subjects. And, uh, but I remember one night I was talking to Mary, and, and I said to her, I said, you know, Mary, there are two things I'd like us to do in the middle of this that I got us into. And Mary hadn't done anything wrong. I'm the one that did something. She just had to go through it with me because she was married to me. I'm dead serious. And, and she was great. But there were, in that period of my life, there were two things that I said to her. I said, you know, Mary, I, I really screwed things up here and I've caused a real problem. But I'm going to ask God to do two things. Number one, I'm going to ask him to teach me every lesson that he's got for me in this situation. Because you know what? I don't want to go to summer school on this thing. I don't want to go through this again. And I asked her to pray for me that every lesson that God had for me, I would learn and that I would pass. And then a little church called me and I wound up pastoring again and I was there three years and, um, and it was a hard time. But you see, and those were sweet people, but I was in summer school. I remember one time, this is funny, I, thought, I remember in our garage, my grandma brought some green beans, some fresh green beans up from Salinas, California. We lived in the Bay Area. And, I'm, and, and my, uh, Mary went with my grandmother somewhere, and I'm snapping those beans in the garage, and I'm listening to a tape that Chuck had done at Western Seminary called Moses, the Ministry, and Me, and he was teaching on failure. And I remember snapping those beans, and I remember tears coming down my cheeks. That's what I remember. The second thing I, I prayed, and I shared with Mary, I said, Mary, I'll, not only do I want to learn everything God has for me in this situation, but secondly, I, I'm, I'd like us to pray that God would enable us to minister to some people down the road in some small way out of this. And, uh, and God was very gracious to have answered that. Um, I was going to get to the success part, but I kind of put the brakes on because, you see, I, I think when, when we fail as men, it's so bitter and it's so hard and we're so disappointed in ourselves and, uh, and I think so often we think we're finished and, and, uh, we, we, and we just look back and we think to ourselves, how could I have been so stupid? How, how could I have done that? But you see, we've all done it. But, but, that's the training ground. That's the proving ground. See, it, it's, it's, God's looking for the heart. God's looking for the response. God's looking for the, uh, he's looking for the, for the admittal. He's looking for the confession. Lord, I've screwed this up. I've messed this up. Lord, what lessons do you have for me? And then, and then what he does is, then, then because of the hurt and because of the pain and because of the disappointment, you see, now, if you're smart, you develop this teachable spirit and you're really tuned in to how he wants to do things because you don't want to go through this again. And then what's really amazing is that God begins to put the pieces back in your life in his way, on his time schedule, in a way that you could never, in a way you could never imagine. That's what he does. Uh, you've probably heard this, but there's a great phrase, and the phrase is this. In the Christian life, failure is never final. Failure is never final. 
when you've got a right heart and you've got a right spirit and you've got an open heart to the Lord and a teachable spirit, uh, that failure is not final. That failure is the beginning of God putting the pieces back in your life and getting your attention and getting you to a point where you say, just as Jesus said, not my will, but what? But thine be done. Don't you have a plan? Don't you have hopes and dreams and ambitions and all that stuff? Sure. But see, and that's fine. But see, the question is, what is his plan? See, what does he want to do? It might be totally different than anything you're thinking right now. I've used this illustration before, but I think one of the most unique ministries that we've seen over the last 30 years was the ministry of Francis Schaeffer. And, and his ministry to reaching a particular generation that was looking for answers, his, uh, his ministry in Switzerland, in, uh, in their ministry in their home called Labrie, uh, that in French means the shelter. And if you know anything about Schaefer, he, he, he was called the apostle to the intellectuals. Uh, Schaefer was a guy uh, that had uh, a remarkable ability to think through biblical issues and apply them to a culture. And literally students from all over the world would make their way to their home in Switzerland. And they would have these discussions late into the night. And one by one, these atheists from Somalia and from Pakistan and from Israel and from the United States would come to Christ. One by one. What's interesting is in their biography, uh, they talk about the fact that people heard about their ministry and would come to them and say, we're interested in starting a ministry like Labrie. What was your plan? How did you do it? <laughs> I mean, it was all they could do to keep from laughing. Because you know how that ministry came? That ministry came about through failure. Through failure. They had a plan. Francis Schaeffer had a plan for World War II. He was a Presbyterian pastor. To go to Europe, there were all of these orphaned children. Someone had to reach these children, care for them, protect them share the gospel. That was a passion he had. His denomination said, why don't you go over there and check it out? He did. Came back, gave a report. They said, we think you're the guy to do it. He had a large church in St. Louis. So he picked up his family, moved to Switzerland to have this ministry to orphan children. And for three years, it was a complete, total failure. Total. Because God had some things he wanted to do in Schaefer's life. Schaefer would walk, and, and the failure was so devastating to Schaefer that he almost lost his faith. And he was completely shelved. He, he, had, he had lost all the success he had in the United States. He was hemmed in. He, it, it's an amazing story, but he was so devastated by the failure, and he kept waiting for this particular, he, he couldn't even preach. He was so hemmed in. And and he got so distraught about what had happened to him that he would just walk the Alps. He would walk the mountains around their little rented home. And he began to think all the way back to why he had become a Christian. And it was in that three years of failure, it was in that three years of, of, of pain and of disappointment where their whole life had fallen apart and he wasn't doing anything, that as he would walk those hills, he went back and thought through every aspect of his faith and got it straight in his own mind as he struggled with his own failure. And that was 
it was shortly after that process where his daughter, who was off at school, asked to bring two friends home. They happened to be atheists. They asked questions. He shared the gospel. They both became Christians. Then the next weekend, she asked if she could bring some others. And then the next weekend, and the next weekend, and the next. And that's how Labrie, one of the most successful ministries of this century, developed. It came out of failure. But a guy was willing to learn from the failure and have a teachable heart. So maybe that's where you are. And you might be thinking you're finished. Not if you have the right heart, not if you have the right attitude. This is how God moves us to the next level. So let's pray. Lord, we rarely are able to anticipate what you have around the next corner for us. I think even uh, here we are in this building that belongs to Stonebriar Community Church. And, and all that you have done to even bring this about, and I've heard Chuck say that he, he, quite frankly, he was somewhat shocked when he began to get indicators that this is what you wanted to do. And then you started bringing people together and you started bringing staff together. And I, I think just about everyone that's involved here, David and Bruce and elders and everyone that shares their story three, four years before would not have had the slightest remote idea they would be here. Completely different circumstances. We never know what's around the corner. And sometimes, Lord, the failure, when we're in the middle of it, it paralyzes us and we're so discouraged. And, and we think that we have... Uh, we think that we have forfeited all... hopes of your goodness visiting us again. Lord, I, I pray for uh, each of us that as we're waiting on you, that we would, uh, Lord, I, I pray a couple things. Number one, that we would not focus on past failure, but that we would focus on the cross and what you have done. I pray secondly, Lord, that you would give us teachable hearts, the courage to admit our parts and then uh, give us a spirit of teachability so that we can learn. And then I would pray thirdly, Lord, that as you take us through these difficult times where we have experienced failure, that you would give us hope that you might use us and that this difficult time is a time of preparation because you're not finished. Lord, so often we think the failure is final and we think it's permanent but there are too many pages in your Bible that, that declare otherwise. So we hope in your word, we hope in your promises. I pray that as we leave here tonight, we'll be infused with hope because of your goodness and kindness and mercy. Give, give us good success, biblical success at the right time. 
and give us the patience to wait until it comes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you. But by membership in a family, a caste, or a class. Such membership determined the individual's rights, privileges, prestige, power, and status in the society. Status was not earned. The faithful family servant of scores of Victorian novels described one aspect of such a society by saying, I know my place. I know my place. And Molly Malone, who was part of such an order, saying, my father and mothers were fishmongers too, and so am I. Birth determined occupation and status. It determined whom you bowed to, who bowed to you, the weight of your voice in the community, and the kind of suitors who sought your daughter's hand. You know what? Christ took care of all that. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. We talked about Joshua last week. He started as a slave, didn't go to the best schools, didn't have the greatest connections. Um, see, with the Lord, there's always a fresh start. And with the Lord, he, he is always able to do something new. You know the remarkable thing? A lot of times we read the genealogies in the Bible, and we think they're boring. They're fascinating. You know who you find in the genealogies? There's a genealogy in Matthew. You know who you find in there? Rahab. Uh, Matthew refers to Rahab. See, what happened was, when, when she asked those guys, be kind to my family, she got more than she bargained for. Because not only were they kind to her family, but God adopted her into his family. And then God blessed her family beyond her wildest dreams because she wound up marrying a guy named Salmon. They had a son by the name of Boaz who married a woman by the name of what? Ruth. He became the father of Obed, the grandfather of Jesse, and the great-grandfather of David. And you see, Joseph the carpenter who was betrothed to the Virgin Mary who had the Lord Jesus Christ is a direct descendant of David and Obed and Boaz and Rahab. That's the great news of the gospel. And it's even in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 7, God says, I am the covenant-keeping God who will favor you to the thousandth generation. You talk about God being good and God being gracious and God being kind. That's the kind of God we serve. I'm done. It's a lot of stuff, isn't it? Um, hey, David, what time are those ladies done over there? Is it 8.30? Are they done at 8.30? Or do you know? It varies. Okay. You know what I want to do? I just want to teach and dump stuff on you guys, and then that's it. Because uh, there are needs that are in here. And... I'd like us to break up and pray. Um, different guys have got different things going on in their lives. and uh, So why don't we break up in twos and threes. If you're here the first time you don't know anybody, this is how you get to know somebody. And if you're not comfortable in praying, just say, hey, I'll pass. No big deal. Uh, but let's break up for a few minutes. You got something on your heart? Let's pray for one another. And then, you know, we'll just consider, uh, you guys are done, we're, we're finished. And uh, let me pray for us, then we'll break up. Lord, this is a, an amazing story. Uh, it's a remarkable story. Uh, there's so much history here. 
and there's so much hope here. Uh, Lord, uh, some of us, um, some of us, Lord, labor and we're anonymous and no one knows what we do and we get very little thanks. That doesn't mean that what we do is not strategic and you see what we do. And uh, it is from you that we'll receive uh, our reward. Thank you for these men who humbled themselves and were willing to take the lower place and not worry about getting the credit. Uh, thank you for, uh, Lord, the years of testing and uh, apprenticeship they must have gone through. And thank you for their courage and their bravery and for the gifts that you gave them. Uh, thank you for Rahab and how she is such a remarkable example of your grace and of your mercy. Uh, here is a woman, Lord, that, that asked that they would show kindness, and she had no idea the kindness you would show to her. And neither do we. We have received so much from your hand. And, uh, Lord, when we get up in the morning, the mercies are going to be fresh again. Now, as we pray with one another, uh, may we be encouraged. May we be sensitive to guys around us who are really hurting. We might need to follow up with a phone call later this week or check in with somebody. Um, just make us sensitive to that, we pray. All right, guys, let's just break up. Twos and threes, let's just pray for each other.